Well, good morning. Everybody doing well? All right, good. Well, I want to bring up a bad memory then. How many of you, raise your hand if you've uh, ever done jury duty. Raise your hand if you've done jury duty. All right, way to go. I'm impressed. That's a lot more than I expected, actually. Uh, let's see. Well, I said jury duty. I should have asked, how many of you have received a jury summons? Raise your hand if you've received a jury summons. Almost all of us here, right? Right? Okay. Uh, Casey and I, we noticed something kind of funny. We used to live in Los Angeles County. We lived in a little apartment in La Habra when we were first married. And La Habra is right on the edge of L.A. County. And uh, we got a jury summons uh, every four months. And then we came down to Orange County and we get a jury summons about every four years. So uh, it, it's, it's interesting to see the difference between uh, jury summons in L.A. County and Orange County. Nevertheless, uh, you all know what it's like, right, to get that jury summons letter. It comes in the mail and you look at it and you're like, oh, no, why did this have to come at this time in my life? Well, as bad as, as, bad as it is to get that jury summons letter in the mail, could you ima- imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that you got that letter and you opened it up And the date that you were supposed to appear in court for the next seven days was December 24th. Could you imagine that? Think about that for a moment. You open up the jury summons, you're already upset, and you look and and the date there, it says you are to appear December 24th for the next seven days. You'd be thinking, are you kidding me, right? You'd be thinking, this is nuts. This is Christmas. This is a holiday. We're not supposed to be dealing with trials and and court proceedings over Christmas and through the time of New Year's. This is to be a special time. This is to be a family time. It would undoubtedly ruin your day if you got a jury summons due Christmas Eve. Well, friends, in our story in the Gospel of Mark, it was the equivalent of Christmas time. It was the equivalent of Christmas time in Mark chapter 15. It was the biggest holiday in all of Israel. The feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Everyone from all around the nation had come to Jerusalem to be with family and friends and to celebrate the greatest holiday, the greatest festival in all of Israel. And on, in the midst of that festival, in the midst of that celebration, in the midst of that holiday, the Jewish religious leaders were gathering together, summoning the council, summoning key leaders of the Sanhedrin, amassing a crowd to go to a court proceeding to try Jesus Christ before Pilate. That is the significance of the events we are about to read in Mark 15. It doesn't make sense. None of us would think about going to a jury summons on December the 24th and the week thereafter. It would be nuts. It's exactly what happened in Mark 15. They were trying Jesus at a time when they should have been celebrating their holiday. 
during a time in which Israel was to be celebrating God's great mercy at Passover. A time in which they were remembering God passing over the homes of Israel who had the blood of the Lamb strewn across the top of the doorpost. A time of mercy and redeeming them from Egypt some 1,500 years ago. And they were forgetting that Passover lamb. They were forgetting that Passover blood that spared their ancestors. And instead, they were hungry for the blood of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The title of my message today is A Bloodthirsty Passover. A Bloodthirsty Passover. It makes no sense that they would try Jesus at a time like this, the equivalent of Christmas in first century Israel, the greatest holiday in all their culture. It makes no sense that they tried Jesus then, only that they were bloodthirsty. Only that they were seeking Jesus' blood. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. And we're going to see the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And again, the artwork we have for the third consecutive week by a Catholic artist named Michael O'Brien. Here we have Jesus bound and Pilate washing his hands clean of the verdict. Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin in verse... One, and continue on uh, through verse 15 in our study this morning. Let's start with verse 1. It says this, Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led Him away and they delivered Him to Pilate. Now, this is the, the final phase of the midnight council that had been assembled on the night after Passover had been celebrated. This is the, the consummation. This is the, this is the verdict. This is the, this is the verdict of the council after having tried Jesus. After having heard many false witnesses speak against Him in the latter parts of Mark 14. And the, Jerusalem, the, 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 the Jewish council had rendered their verdict. And Mark here has a summary statement. They met together, they consulted with one another, and they bound Jesus. They led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate. This is a, a summary statement of the end of the night's proceedings. Now, they were taking Jesus to a person by the name of Pilate. Who was Pilate? I'm sure most of you know. I'm not going to tell you anything you, you don't know. But Pilate was the uh, like the governor of Palestine. He was a... Roman appointed ruler, appointed by Caesar. And uh, it's, it, the fact that Pilate was appointed to Palestine indicates that he wasn't in the greatest graces with Caesar. Uh, undoubtedly, Caesar uh, entrusted him with some duty. But nevertheless, the further away you were from Rome, the less likely you were to be in Caesar's good graces. And so while he had been entrusted with the duty of Palestine, Caesar had kept Pilate at a distance. There, there was some, uh, historians indicate that there were some differences between Caesar and Pilate. Pilate was a ruthless man. He was brutal. He was cruel. Um, Josephus, the Jewish historian, and, and uh, Philo, the Jewish historian, they both indicate that, that Pilate was one of the cruelest governors in all of Palestine. Um, 
Luke, the Gospel of Luke speaks of Pilate uh, killing a, a, group of gen, a group of Galileans in a particular episode in Israel's history. And so the Jews, when they thought of Pilate, they thought of an extremely cruel and harsh man. Why are they bringing him to Pilate? Well, they want to kill Jesus. They don't want to imprison him. They don't want to put him in jail. They want to kill him. And Roman law has it that Israel, being a vassal state of Rome, doesn't have the power to kill a man. Sometimes they did anyway. By, uh, by a riotous mob, they would stone someone. But that was looked, looked at very unfavorably by Rome. And so Israel, the Jewish leaders, in an attempt to uh, put a proper uh, verdict in place, they come to Pilate to kill Jesus. Let's go to verse 2 and read through verse 5. Verse 2, Then Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused Jesus of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now notice Pilate's question right off the bat. Luke, makes, uh, Luke is, is jumping the gun here quickly. Pilate immediately, when Jesus is brought before him, asks, Are you the king of the Jews? Now surely the reason that Pilate is asking this question is because that, that accusation that Jesus was the king of the Jews was precisely what the Jews were accusing Jesus of before Pilate. But it's interesting that this accusation comes out now because actually uh, we didn't hear about it in Mark chapter 14 when they were trying Jesus before the Sanhedrin. In Mark chapter 14 and in earlier passages in the Gospel of Mark and throughout the Gospels, we heard a plethora of other accusations. Let's take a look at some of the accusations that came against Jesus in the past. Take a look. Number one, Jesus professed to have the power to forgive sins. They accused Him of that in Mark chapter 3. They said, "How you, they were thinking in their heads, blasphemy, you can't do that. So that was an accusation against Jesus. Secondly, Jesus asserted that He was one in nature with the Father. We see this in John chapter 10. Uh, and uh, the Jews heard it and they took up stones to stone Him. So undoubtedly, this was an accusation that had, that had plagued Jesus. Thir- thirdly, Jesus denounced the temple. Now this we saw in Mark chapter 14. They, 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 got, they rose up and said, this man claims that he would tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. Fourth, Jesus claimed to be Messiah, Son of God. And from our study last week, we learned that Messiah, Son of God, or Messiah, Son of the Blessed One, was the highest conception of the Messiah in first century Israel. For those of you that weren't here last week, there are many, many first century conceptions of who the Messiah would be. Some thought He would be a man. Some thought He would be divine. Some thought the Messiah would be militaristic. Some thought He would be more spiritual. And all sorts of things in between. And all little mix and matches of different attributes of who the Messiah would be. But this conception, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Messiah, the Son of God, that was the highest conception of Messiah in first century Israel. 
And thus, therefore, number five, the Jews rose up and said, therefore, Jesus had blasphemed the God of Israel. And so here we find the five primary accusations against Jesus in the Gospels. But notice, the the king of the Jews' accusation isn't up there, is it? The king of the Jews' accusation isn't up there. If blasphemy was what made the Jews so irate, why now before Pilate do we see them changing their accusation against Jesus? Why now before Pilate do they avoid the accusation of blasphemy and instead speak of Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jews? You see, this, this, this is a new accusation here. The king of the Jews is a brand new accusation. Now, we've heard trickles of it in other parts of the Gospels, but, but on an official level, it's a new accusation. And why use a new accusation now is the question. Why would they change their, their game plan before Pilate? Ben Witherington has a thought about this, and I agree. He says, a Roman official would not crucify a man on charges of blasphemy against the Jewish God. For crucifixion was the punishment for crimes against the state, such as insurrection or high treason. There's a key word here in this accusation. And that key word is king. King. You see, for Pilate, there was no king but Caesar. Any other claim to kingship would have been considered high treason. And the Jews, they knew this full well. And that is why they structured their accusation accordingly. The Jews were looking for a charge that would stick, remember? They were looking for any charge that would stick. That would lead Jesus to His certain execution. And they found it. They found the charge that would stick. They said, aha, we can come before Pilate and we can make the claim that Jesus professes to be the King of the Jews, surely that will catch Pilate's attention. What about Jesus' response to Pilate? Look back at verse 2. Then Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said to him, It is as you say. The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you, but Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Jesus' response, it's a peculiar one, isn't it? He says, it is as you say, in the New King James translation. Other translations have it, uh, you have said so, or that's what you say. It's It's an obscure answer. Whatever the answer is, we can be sure of one thing. Whatever the exact phrasing of this, and it's a peculiar phrase in Greek, so it's difficult for the translators to, to, to translate this into English, but whatever it means, this obscure response from Jesus, we can be sure of one thing. Pilate didn't take it as a resounding yes. We can be sure of one thing. Pilate didn't take it as a resounding yes. If he had there would be no more trial. Jesus right then and right there would have been condemned and executed. But Pilate doesn't do that. Pilate doesn't do that. Instead, 
he questions Jesus further. I kind of liken it to, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my wife loves, uh, she, she absolutely, um, she, well, she can't stand generic answers, okay? She can't stand them. If there's one thing about my wife, she can't stand generic answers, for me at least. And when, when she asks me, honey, do you like my hair? Or, honey, do you like my outfit today? And I say, yeah, it looks good. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> That's a big no-no in the Anderson household. She says, honey, you like my hair? You like my outfit? And I said, yeah, it looks great. It looks good. It looks good. Oh, man, I'm in deep trouble right then, right, honey? Yep, okay. I, no, I can't give a generic answer. I need to comment on the attire and on the style of the hair and how it looks and, and how it complements her eyes and this, that, and the other. And I need to say, oh, honey, yeah, I like the contrast there and it looks so good and this, that, and the other. And if I give that answer, then I'm in her good graces. But if I say, yeah, yeah, it looks good, it looks good. Well, then I'm in trouble. Now, I, 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 lo- I don't learn this lesson every day, and I keep making this mistake every day, but one thing I've learned, every time I give the generic answer, I have to answer the question again, and again, and again, and again, because I haven't given her a strategic, a, a resounding yes or no answer. She questions further. She says, well, do you really like it? Or, you know, sh- so she'll go further, further, and further, she wants an exact answer. And if I don't give Casey an exact answer, I incur more questions. Look what's happening here. It seems that Jesus hasn't given an exact answer. He's given an obscure answer. And so Pilate, frustrated by the obscure answer, what does he do? He questions Jesus further. Look at verse 4. Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? This proves, friends, that Jesus has not given a resounding yes to the question, although He was King of the Jews. He'd given kind of an obscure answer, something like, well, you've said that, haven't you? And Pilate's saying, are you, are you going to answer me or not? And so Pilate is questioning Him further. And we see here that many are bringing testimony against Jesus in verse 3. Pilate is hearing many, many false accusations and Jesus is saying absolutely nothing. He's responding with silence. Reminds us of Isaiah 53.7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus' example before the Jews and before Pilate, uh, they, were in, they were instructive moments for the readers of Mark's Gospel and for you and me today. Because if you'll recall back in Mark 13, verse 11, Jesus says there's going to come a time when you're brought before councils, before tribunals, before the courts, and you won't know what to say, but in those moments the Holy Spirit will be with you. The Holy Spirit will speak through you and will help you to know how to respond in that situation. And in Jesus' case, Jesus, full, completely full of the Spirit of God, was prompted at that moment just to remain silent. To recognize that these accusations were so ludicrous, so out, outlandish that it didn't even deserve an answer. 
the readers of Mark's Gospel were, were watching this, these trials. They were watching Jesus interact with Pilate. They were watching Jesus interact with the Jewish council. And they were saying, okay, this is how we react as well when we come before the court that day. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he, meaning Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to the Jews, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. And then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask Pilate to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed Jesus over because of envy. You'll notice that custom in verse 6. This is often not spoken about much in, 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 in our study of the Passion Week. But there was a peculiar custom going on here throughout, uh, throughout the trial that plays a prominent role here. and It was the custom around the time of Passover to release a Jewish prisoner at the request of the Jewish people. Um, it, it was a Jewish custom. According to John 18, verse 39, it was not a Roman custom. Some scholars speculate that this was actually a Roman gesture of good faith toward Israel. Well, it it was that, but it was not nearly that. It was a Jewish custom. They had grown accustomed to doing this, and Rome obliged to their custom. Why did they do it? Why did they release a prisoner at Passover? It was a display of God's mercy. It was a display of God's mercy in, in, in releasing a prisoner they were remembering being let go in Egypt. In releasing a captive, they were remembering when they were captive under Pharaoh and they were let go. And so this was a a near and dear custom to them, one that they looked forward to as they uh, released someone in an act of mercy. Now jump over to verses 8 and 9. We'll come back to verse 7 in just a moment. Let's read verses 8 and 9 again. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask Pilate to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Now, at first glance, you might miss this. I did on a number of occasions as I studied this week. And it was very late in my study that something just hit me across the face. And and it kind of really struck me as odd. So I began to explore this. But... The sequence of verses 8 and 9 is really peculiar. The sequence, the chronology of it. Think about it for a moment. Now don't don't think about the the story as you've heard it in Sunday school. uh, Think about the story as you're reading it right now for the first time. We see an interesting sequential order here in verses 8 and 9. Usually in the Bible, these verses go in sequential order. They go in chronological order, right? But a big problem arises if we were to read these two verses in chronological order. Let me show you what I mean. If Mark Mark 15, 8 and 9 is chronological, we would look at the story like this first. The Jewish religious leaders have come to Pilate in hopes of executing Jesus. So far, so good. Next. A crowd amasses as Pilate hears testimony against Jesus and questions Jesus himself. So far, so good. Now, let's go to the next order in the chronology. 
Suddenly, the crowd's attention shifts to which criminal should be released at Passover. Doesn't it strike you as odd? It strikes me as odd. Why would we see such a jump in the conversation here? This sequence, friends, actually doesn't work. Uh, it, it, it's awkward. Why, after having spent so much time focusing on Christ, on Jesus, they had come to Pilate focused on Jesus, a crowded amass focused on Jesus, they wanted to kill Him, they wanted to execute Him, and all of a sudden, in the midst of this trial, they shift focus to the Passover custom of releasing a prisoner. Why the change in topics? Why the change in subjects? Is there something missing here? I suspect there is. I suspect this sequence doesn't work. But what seems odd at first glance becomes crystal clear when we insert one very important element into the story, and it is this. In between the, these elements, Pilate proposes a solution to the trial. Release Jesus in honor of Passover, as was their custom. Now what I'm suggesting here is that verses 9 and 8 should be switched from a chronological perspective. Because it makes so much more sense why the crowd's attention would suddenly be shifted in light of the trial of Jesus. The crowd, friends, didn't bring up the Passover custom. They were bringing up Jesus. They were there to watch His trial. The Jewish religious leaders were dead set on destroying Christ. They would not have allowed the topic of discussion to change until a verdict had been reached. And so the only plausible explanation here for the crowd's outburst in verse 8 is that Pilate had instigated it. Pilate offered to release, release Jesus. Now you might be wondering, why, wait, why is this even important? And then, is there other evidence for this? Okay, First, why is this even important? Why, are we, why am I bringing this up? Friends, the idea that Pilate showed a measure of mercy to Jesus runs very contrary to a lot of secular scholarship these days. I don't know if you recall The Passion of the Christ, a film made by, uh, produced and directed by Mel Gibson. But in the creation of that movie and in the feedback that, he, that Mr. Gibson got after he had made the movie, do you know what one of, his greatest complaint, one of the greatest critiques against the movie was? It was from secular historians who argued that Gibson's portrayal of Pilate was too weak, was too compassionate. It was that Pilate was not that kind of a man. Pilate wouldn't have offered this. Pilate, there's no, the, the biblical evidence must be wrong because Pilate was not this kind of person and he would not have given this kind of offer to the Jewish religious leaders. And thus, one of the biggest critiques against the Bible from secular historian perspectives is its portrayal of Pilate. Some believe the Bible also presents a picture of Pilate that just isn't accurate. They contend that other Jewish historians of that day made Pilate ruthless and cruel. And so they think that it's incredulous that the Bible suggests that Pilate would offer to release Jesus. Now it's true that Pilate was a brutal man. But I contend on internal evidence in the Scriptures that we cannot avoid the conclusion that it was Pilate who offered a measure of mercy to Christ. There is no other viable reason for why the conversation would switch from Jesus 
through this Passover custom. The crowd would not have made that switch. Someone else must have. And our only explanation in the Scriptures is that Pilate offered it. And you say, okay, Neil, good theory. Good theory. Where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Good question. The evidence is in Matthew, Luke, and John. In Matthew, Luke, and John, this is the chronology. In Matthew, Luke, and John, this is the chronology. The second piece of evidence, and perhaps most notably, is that Mark, John Mark, who wrote this Gospel, was writing to Gentiles. He was writing to non-Jews living in and around Rome, far removed from Jesus' trial and Jewish custom. And these Gentiles, having little understanding of the Jewish custom to release a prisoner at Passover, well, some may have known about it, but certainly not all, having little understanding of this custom, Mark would need to explain it before speaking about it. And so Mark wrote about Pilate's offer to release Jesus in verse 9 after verse 8 because he had to explain the custom first in verse 8. Mark felt the need to explain why Pilate would make such a proposal in the first place. And thus, verse 8 precedes verse 9 in your Bibles even though the order of these events were actually reversed in history. Let me say that one more time. One more time. Pilate, excuse me, Mark puts verse 8 before verse 9 to explain the custom, not to explain the chronology of these events. And so his Gentile readers would now, having understood the custom in verse 8, would have recognized why Pilate was offering what he was offering in verse 9. Nine. Pilate did offer to release Jesus. I believe there's strong internal biblical evidence for this because the crowd would not have brought this topic up at a time like this. But the crowd didn't want Pilate's offer. They didn't want Jesus back at, at Passover. They wanted someone else back at Passover. Take a look at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he, Pilate, should release, should rather release Barabbas to them. Now, who is Barabbas? Look back at verse 7. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed, committed murder in the rebellion. Pilate was offering Jesus for whatever reason. Scriptures indicate that he found little fault in Jesus. He found the evidence somewhat unconvincing. Um, it's also probably the case that he didn't like the Jewish religious leaders, and so he was probably trying to spite them a little bit, trying to see if the crowd would, would release the very one they had brought before him. But for whatever reason, Pilate did offer to release Jesus. That much is historically true based on internal biblical evidence. But they didn't want Jesus. They wanted Barabbas. Barabbas was, as Mark describes him, a rebel and had committed murder in the rebellion. This is as much as we know about Barabbas. There's not a lot of extra-biblical evidence about this, this man. Uh, he was probably a, a religious, uh, a Jewish zealot. 
Um, you might liken him to the term freedom fighter. He was most likely a part of a group in Israel who were committed to militaristic means of securing Israel's independence from Rome. And Rome hated the Jewish zealots. They hated them. They hated men like Barabbas because they were always causing them trouble. Um, but of course, many of the Jews would have, would have revered this man for his work to secure Israel's independence. Though not all would have done so. But herein lies the irony. The Jews were telling Pilate that Jesus was an insurrectionist. Remember? The Jews were telling Pilate, Jesus has committed high treason. Jesus is an insurrectionist. And the charge was false. Jesus had never assembled one armed revolt against Rome, nor did He advocate it. But Barabbas, he was an insurrectionist. He had committed high treason. And though he didn't claim to be a king, he certainly defied Caesar and had committed treasonous acts against Rome. And so the Jewish religious leaders were prepared to kill one supposed insurrectionist, Jesus, and release another who was surely an insurrectionist, Barabbas. Not Jesus, they they shouted in unison at Pilate. Not Jesus, we don't want Him to be released. We want Barabbas. Verse 12, Then Pilate answered and said to them again, What what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. Here we see uh, Pilate returning to form. Again, he was a brutal and ruthless man. He was a mocking man. Take a look at the, the close language in verse 12. He says, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call king of the Jews? It's most likely a very sarcastic comment. They, of course, didn't call Jesus the king of the Jews. They accused Jesus of calling himself the king of the Jews. And Pilate responds to them and says, Okay, you want Barabbas? What about your king here? What do you want to do with your king, Israel? Understandably, the crowd would not have been pleased with that response from Pilate. And they begin to turn on Jesus. I would argue that comment was one of the contributing factors. The crowd begins to turn on Jesus. Now remember, friends, one week ago, one week ago, actually less than a week ago, multitudes and multitudes of people had palm branches in their hands and they were waving them in the air as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And they were shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of King David. What happened? What had happened in such a short amount of time that caused the multitudes in Jerusalem to go from hailing Jesus as the Son of David to crying out, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. You know, it really, it really seems unthinkable that a crowd would, would shift that quickly. And it is. It is unthinkable. I think that's exactly the point. 
it's unthinkable that, that, that this would happen on such, in such quick proximity to previous events. It's unthinkable that, G, that, that one of Jesus' twelve closest friends, Judas, would betray Him. It's unthinkable that the Jewish religious leaders would, would hold a, a midnight trial hours after celebrating Passover. That's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that they would bring Jesus to trial before even knowing what charge they wanted to bring before Him, like we learned last week. It's unthinkable that all of this would happen at a time that we would liken to the, the, the week of Christmas. We wouldn't go to a jury summons on Christmas Eve. We'd be reticent to do so the days following Christmas. We would look for any and all excuse to avoid that. And yet, here, at the time of Passover, this is happening to Jesus. It's unthinkable. Why did the crowd turn on Jesus so quickly? Friends, the only reason we can point to is Satan himself. It really is. The only thing we can point to is, is the deception of Satan himself. Only the devil could bring about such unthinkable, delusional events and circumstances. Only when Satan has grabbed hold of a person's life are things like this possible. So for reasons we can only attribute to Satan himself, the people gathered at Jesus' trial that morning, they were unthinkably bloodthirsty. They were unthinkably bloodthirsty. And it should remind us, friends, that Satan's deceptive powers are immense and great. They are great. We sometimes, think we, are, um, we sometimes think we are immune to Satan's deceptions and delusions. Perhaps we think that we would not have acted like they did some 2,000 years ago in trying Jesus. Yet our daily battle with sin suggests otherwise. Uh, I, for one, really, uh, I, I always cling to the, the songs, uh, to, the, the, to the lyrics of this song by Stuart Townend. It says, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin, Upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And we think that, we think that there's no way I would have been deceived by that. There's no way I would have been deluded by that. And yet, I think the lyrics of this song ring true. We underestimate the schemes of the devil, his power. His power to deceive, to bring about wrath in us, to bring about ruthlessness in us, to bring about a, a heart that is cold and hard and without mercy. We underestimate His ability to influence us in that way. And when we do, we change from waving palm branches and saying, Hail, hail. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We, change, we, we drop those palm branches and we pick up our fists and say, crucify Him, crucify Him. The Jews of Jesus' day, they were deceived. They were deceived by Satan. And I fear that we would have been right there with Him. Even still, they were not without fault, friends. I want to make that very clear. They were not without fault. We can't just chalk up our, tim we can't just chalk up our sins to, well, the devil made me do it. The Jews were not without fault. We are not without fault. 
And as we conclude this morning, this, the study this morning in verse 15, we find that Pilate was not without fault either. Take a look at verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, he released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Notice the phrase, wanting to gratify the crowd. Friends, the Bible paints no rosy picture of Pilate. I reject that idea as false. I reject, I reject it when secular historians make it seem that the Bible paints a picture of Pilate that isn't accurate. It's entirely accurate. It's entirely accurate. It's not a rosy picture of him. Here in verse 15, Mark makes it clear that Pilate was a coward. The Gospel writers make it clear that Pilate found the evidence against Jesus to be largely unconvincing, and yet in the midst of unconvincing evidence, he succumbed to peer pressure. In the end, Pilate makes his decision based on the whims of the crowd and suppresses his instincts. Mark is basically saying in verse 15 that Pilate was a coward. So much for the Bible's sympathy toward Pilate. Pilate did end up releasing Barabbas. He ordered that Jesus be scourged. And this was a traditional preliminary procedure before crucifixion. And this was no simple beating, friends. This was an excruciating experience. Uh, you've probably heard of the instrument that was used uh, at that time. It was called the Cat of Nine Tails. It was a large... Uh, it, was, it was nine long strips of leather. Nine long strips of leather threaded together on one end to make a handle. And the remaining strips, the remaining nine loose ends, were punctured with glass and, and stone and metal and bone. And as the, as the scourger would grab the one handle side and have the loose ends ready, he would whip it across the criminal's back and legs and chest. And it would embed these nine, uh, these nine leather strips filled with glass and bone. It would embed into the skin of the person who received it, only let loose when he pulled back. When these nine strips were laced across a person's back, it was uh, sheer horror for the one experiencing it. And thus the Bible reminds us that by His stripes, by His stripes we have been healed. By Jesus' stripes we have been healed. It was a great, great price that secured our salvation. What can we take from the study today? I actually I labored with this long and hard as well. I struggled with application for a story such as this. Um, there are many different angles you can take. I wanted to focus on one. But first, at a time... At a time when they should have been remembering the merciful blood of the Passover lamb, Israel's religious leaders were bloodthirsty. They were pining over which false accusation to bring before Pilate to achieve Jesus' execution. And they refused to accept any lesser judgment. And from that we see clearly, friends, that ruthlessness, ruthlessness is from the enemy. Ruthlessness emanates from the enemy. It emanates from Satan. If there's one thing that can be very clear about our study today, it is that they were so focused 
on Jesus' execution that they were willing to do anything to obtain it. And I'm asking us the question this morning. This is what I'd like you to take as you walk away from this. Are you without mercy towards someone? Are you without mercy towards someone? Do you have a ruthless heart towards someone? Do you have a cold heart? One that is without mercy, without grace. You're angry with them. You wish ill of them. You snicker when they fail or when they uh, when trouble or hardship comes their way. Are you without mercy towards someone? Friends, as Israel should have remembered the Passover, let us not forget the merciful example of Jesus, the Lamb of God. By His stripes we were healed. By His stripes we were healed. Through ruthlessness, Jesus brought about salvation. Through cruelty, Jesus secured our eternal destiny. That if we believe in Him, we would be with Him forever. And friends, ruthlessness, cruelty, thinking ill of others, doing ill toward others, it's, it's unchristian. It's not to be a part of our community. It's to be far, far from us. And so my challenge to you this day is to not make the mistake of the Jewish religious leaders. They were supposed to be remembering Passover, a time of mercy. Your challenge and mine, we are always to be remembering the mercy of Christ. That we would never be cruel or never be ruthless, never be bloodthirsty toward another. Let's close in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, You are a God of mercy. You, through Your Son, secured our merciful salvation in spite of ruthless and bloodthirsty behavior. Father, You are a merciful God. And Your Son is a merciful Savior. And Father, our focus, our goal this day is to be like Him. To respond to cruelty and ruthlessness with grace and mercy. To not think ill of others. To not laugh and mock when others are troubled or hardship whom are our enemies or whom we have trouble with. But Father, that we would let, lay aside that ruthless and cruel and cold heart and that we would focus evermore on Your Son's mercy and thus show that mercy to all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.